This episode contains discussions of gender-based violence, including but not limited to physical, emotional, and psychological abuse. The content may be distressing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is experiencing abuse, please seek help from a local support organization or helpline. Welcome to the fourth episode of So We Heard, an informal coffee break chat series. I'm your host, Ragini, assistant producer on Can You Hear Us? Monica and Madeira started the Can You Hear Us podcast when they were master's students at LSE. They wanted to create a safe space for BIWOC to share their experiences. The podcast has grown leaps from this initial idea, while the essence remains intact. So We Heard, like our parent series, is a space for BIWOC to share their narratives. We wanted to create a space where we could discuss and understand anything related to international development without the pressure of having to sound intelligent while doing it. Today, I am very excited to be talking to one of our founders, Madeira. Hi, Madeira. Hey, Ragini. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Of course. The So We Heard team acknowledges that we do not represent all women or femmes of color, and we can only speak from our experiences and perspectives. But we strive to include all women and femmes of color in our conversations. We are always open to feedback from our listeners. The United Nations General Assembly has designated November 25th as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So how could this episode be about anything else? The initiative was created to support the civil society-led 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign around the world. The campaign runs from November 25th, concluding on the day that commemorates Human Rights Day, December 5th. The global theme of this year's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence, or GBV, as we're going to be calling it in this episode, is Unite, Invest to Prevent Violence Against Women and Girls. So I want to start off this conversation with a question that our lead researcher, Doris, had she was wondering whether this kind of emphasis on women's vulnerability could lead to the essentialization of women. So, for instance, parents might inform their daughters to be more cautious to any potential dangers, while sons' parents are less worried, and they may even feel relieved that they have a son instead of a daughter. So, Madeira, do you think this is a problem at all in the first place? Ragni, this is a great question. Thanks, Doris, for asking it. Doris's comment and the idea that there is sort of a emphasis on women and girls when it comes to talking about it. I mean, we even talk about violence against women and girls. Mm -hmm. I think you really have to look at the history of uh, feminist movements back in the 80s and 90s when the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence as well as the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women was started. Mm -hmm. And you really have to look at how women's issues were not seen, whether they were economic, social, or even when it comes to this health related, were not really seen as important in the eyes of development institutions. And one of the reasons why there is such an emphasis on women and girls when it comes to talking about gender-based violence, well, number one, one in three women and girls are there's some form of intimate partner violence in their lives so we cannot not acknowledge that women and girls in particular and all of their diversity are incredibly vulnerable to violence so there's that Mm -hmm. but number two we also have to consider that the way that we were able to frame gender-based violence as a women's issue that was had repercussions in both the economic and social spheres of public life globally 
there was a need to really focus on women and girls because they weren't seen as important. And so I think this essentialism that you're hearing is actually becoming more of a conversation now because there is this reality that we do not live in a binary anymore. Yeah. But at the same time, globally, we might not necessarily think outside of that binary. So a lot of violence is currently perpetrated. Of course, it's happening to women and girls, but it's also happening to boys and young men. It's also happening to gender expansive folks, especially um, trans women and girls. It's happening to men who have sex with men. Um, so I, I think like there is, I think it is a problem in itself, but I think part of the problem has more to do with the history mm-hmm. and less to do what's happening now. And I think that sometimes it's easier to corral behind one idea, one population when that can actually be very detrimental. Um, so I do think it's a problem. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed in some fashion. Yeah, because my follow up then would be if we do consider it to be a problem, how can we address it while still continuing to advocate for overcoming GBV and keeping women and girls at the center of it? without taking the focus away from them, so to say, because like you mentioned, history and context is very important when we're discussing something like this. Yeah, I I mean, I think the first thing you need to look at language. Um, There's a reason why it says 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. I think we need to acknowledge that there is this sort of colloquial view that gender immediately means women and girls, but it does not. Gender and gender-related issues affect everybody. It does not matter about your gender identity, your gender expression, your sexual orientation. Gender is a umbrella term to admit that we all move and work in ways that are solely based off of these social constructs that we've created, right? So I think we need to acknowledge that gender-based violence is not just talking about women and girls. And it isn't. That's why they've switched the language. I think that there is actually already work that's being done that is really acknowledging that we can empower women and girls to make decisions about their body, that they advocate for their autonomy and choice. But at the end of the day, if there are institutional barriers in place, as well as ideas and theoretical perspectives that are continued to be pushed by cultural norms, wherever women and girls lay, that objectify and limit the identity of what a woman or girl can be, those ideas need to be addressed. And so there is a lot of work going on about social norms change, and it's really actually recognizing the power relations between men and women, and how, you know, if we live in a society that is inherently patriarchal, women can make any choice that they would like, but at the end of the day, men still have the power to be able to change there's a lot of work right now going into seeing as men and boys as being change agents to stopping violence, which I think is really great. But I don't think it gets talked about as much within like multi-lat organizations. And this is just an opinion. And I think part of it is that there is just such a, I think it's a, it's a question about funding. I think it's a question about getting the attention of people because I think globally we're all on different levels when it comes to conversations about this yeah no I think you make such a good point about power dynamics and how essentially uh, historically the power dynamics between genders has been skewed if we live in a patriarchal society a lot of the institutions that we operate within also operate within these patriarchal structures the power dynamic has been skewed so 
I think when criticisms of essentialization come up, personally, I am a little bit skeptical of who is making those criticisms in the first mm. place. Because like you already mentioned, language is a very important aspect to be taken into consideration yeah. over here. Like certain power structures exist to benefit certain people, obviously. And we do have to be a little bit skeptical when they are the ones advocating for change within those power structures. Because if the structure is built to benefit them, why would they want to turn it upside down at all they would want to maintain something that benefits them yeah um, yeah it it kind of speaks to i'm not sure if you've ever heard of this and i wonder if doris thought about this as well you know back in the 80s and 90s there was this idea about essentialist feminism mm-hmm. and i think what we would kind of call its counterpart when we talk about white corporate feminism in right. the same sense mm-hmm. it's this idea that because all women and girls have specific biological attributes or have certain ideas about caring and nurturing that we all have this same idea. And so a lot of this kind of gotten got torn apart in particular in anti-essentialist legal theory when we're talking about domestic violence. And it was recognizing that all women are not the same, that they all have different ways that they experience violence because of whether they are, it's their gender, whether it's their appearance, whether it's their ethnicity or race, their economic status. And then that needs to be considered within law when we're talking about criminalizing violence in a way that's inherently towards women. So I think like that, I always think about that in the sense that unfortunately, the way that we got here has everything to do with the way that we've tried to put all women in a box, which I think you and I both talk about, and we talk about this on the podcast, you cannot do that. You just can't. There's no, you will not find any sort of uh, resolution in anything if you continue to put people in specific boxes um, and not acknowledge that there are multifaceted reasons for ways of things that happen and come to be. So yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think as time has kind of evolved, I see that it has become acceptable, at least in my time, to raise a voice against violence. If you are experiencing right. violence, especially in the workplace, in like profession, in public spheres, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to say how like effective it is to to raise a voice, but it is certainly not something that's seen as a taboo. You are encouraged to go ahead and do it, and keeping in mind the fact that this isn't a universal experience, but mm. it is something that because of power dynamics, because of patriarchy, certain sections of the population are more vulnerable to. Obviously, like we've discussed, the statistic, I believe, is one in three women have experienced intimate partner violence. So that, but I think like because of the nature of gender norms, like we've already spoken about norms, as a woman, you, there is this idea that the love and appreciation you will receive in the private sphere doesn't compare to the kind of, you, you will never receive that kind of appreciation in the public sphere, no matter how great of a professional you become or no matter how successful you become you won't be able to achieve that kind of and I think again this is an idea that my generation Gen Z girls who've really grown up Mm -hmm. with girl power feminism it's something that we're coming to terms with now as we are entering workspaces I think meeting colleagues who are different than us or similar to us who have different visions for their careers who have different visions for their lives I think we're all learning to kind of negotiate with these ideals understand how much we want to prescribe to understand how how much we want to still kind of chart our own path so mm-hmm. yes yeah I think, I think like you're right I, having the freedom to even speak on these ideas but I think 
as you can see, we're still still celebrating this campaign, yes. you know, that because it's still such an issue. And I think about a lot, I think we've said this a lot already here, but it's really about the systems that are in place. It's really, it's really coming down to, you know, if we continue to move in these modes of not only patriarchy, we could even say capitalism in some degree has a level of gendered related issues that allow it to Mm -hmm. uh, work. And I think that capitalism can sometimes emphasize some of these patriarchal values in a way that can be very harmful for women and girls and gender expansive folks. And so I think really thinking about the the systems in place, and I, I think that that's in particular really important when we're talking about gender expansive folks, because legalization and criminalization of specific acts, whether it be criminalization of LGBTQI plus individuals, even sex workers, that already is a system that limits people's understanding of where violence can occur. And I think that we are just becoming, thanks to you all, the generation that's coming up, I think we're really starting to think about how laws and public institutions create harm in a way that I don't think that was necessary, necessarily the reason behind creating, but language and words really matter. Speaking of spaces where violence can occur, I kind of wanted to draw our listeners' attention to a piece of media that we would like to uh, use for mm-hmm. our episode this week. And this is an online portal created by UNFPA called Virtual is Real. We'll provide a link with our episode description and I highly recommend anybody who has time to go look at it yeah. because so not only does it provide you a background of GBV, online GBV, it has an archive of stories from survivors, which are, I mean, survivors from all over the world and they're highly impactful stories. And just the whole portal really gives you a picture of virtual gender-based mm-hmm. violence so the most interesting statistic that i found in the portal was from the economic intelligence unit it said that 85 percent of women have either experienced virtual violence or witnessed it against other women and it kind of took me back to the one in three women have experienced intimate partner violence statistic because when you hear it it's shocking but then you take five minutes to think about it and it makes so much sense so just like that, virtual violence against women can be seen in the form of cyber stalking, online harassment, sharing revenge porn, or even online trafficking. And while women can partake in these activities too, according to the International Telecommunication Union, globally, 69% men use the internet compared to 63% women, which means there are 259 million more men than women using the internet. Yeah. So... Keeping this year's theme of uh, invest to prevent violence against women in mind, to what extent do we need to invest in boys and men to combat gender-based violence? Because if we're talking about a whole new space where it's being committed, a space that is, again, dominated by men, Mm -hmm. we do need to bring them into the conversation. But to what extent do we bring them into the conversation? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Absolutely. We need to invest more in men and boys when it comes to talking about gender-based violence. I, I first want to say that the, the site that's been created by UNFPA is shocking. Yes. Uh, I think that those that go and look at it, I think it is immediately clear the severity of the problem mm-hmm. when it comes to, we call it technology facilitated 
GBV. Virtual violence is like so much an easier way to say it. But anyway, you know, and that statistic that you had at the end where, you know, 69% of men use the internet compared to 63% of women. Part of the conversation when it comes to technology facility GBV has a lot to do with the digital gap between mm-hmm. men and women. And the idea that is, is similar to this is that it, it's not only, you know, access to the internet, it's access to a phone right? It's access to any sort of device. And also it's an expression of voice. Mm -hmm. So the, I, a lot of what happens when it comes to virtual violence is it is silencing women. And so we see it a lot when it comes to journalists, but I think that the perfect example that you gave, or it gives up at the top is cyber stalking. But even I think on the site, they even give an idea of not having consent over photos specifically. Like, you know, mm-hmm. photos being sent and that being a way to essentially silence a survivor from speaking up. Mm-hmm. And it also puts the survivor not as a victim, but it actually because of the way virtual violence operates, it actually makes it 10 times worse for the survivor to get help because yeah. people actually inherently assume that it's their fault. And so there's so much to say about virtual violence, but I will say when it comes to when we're talking about investing in boys and men, I think this goes back to the first question. I think we really need to think about why when in in this current world where there is sort of this populist far-right idea that is actually acknowledging or trying to acknowledge the traditional, the need to want traditional values Mm -hmm. and what they define traditional values as. And traditional values are, it's patriarchy. I think you can see that in Brazil. You can see that in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think you can actually even see it a lot of time in East Asia, um, in particular in the way yeah. that cultural works towards women and, and you know, yeah. sort of In India, it. definitely in India as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that this is an idea there's a topic there. And I think that there is this kind of pushback to traditional values where in theory, traditional values is what made gender-based violence be silenced. It was the idea that these sort of things, whether it be harming your wife or marital rape, were considered actually completely okay within the lines of marriage for a lot of people legally, like legally, it was okay to do these things. And the same thing with female genital cutting and mutilation, which I think has has a little bit more of a bigger conversation to be had there, but just to acknowledge that, you know, there are those things, right, that like are happening. So I think when it comes to extent investing in boys and men, I think we also need to just invest in the systems, the institutional systems that acknowledge these things, whether it be legal and policy changes, whether it be, um, you know, politics in the sense of election, election and having people be more electable in organizations that actually push against violence. And then I also think that there needs to be more of an investment in boys and men in particular of recognizing negative portrayals of masculinity as being a norm that needs to continue. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that there is a lot of pushback when we, I think they call it positive masculinity. And I think we need to really work on the language that we use when we're talking about masculinity, because I think it isn't inherently harmful. I think that there are just values that have been perpetrated by the systems that be that make masculinity difficult and 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 can cause harm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that like it definitely needs to happen. I think the question has always been who is responsible for bringing it up. Yeah. And my question to you, and I, I always think about this a lot, 
uh, we're talking about it as this women, right? Mm-hmm. What about men? Like who, why, it, you know, how do we have men take over this conversation? Yes. And I see that in the same way of this website, like, was this website geared towards men or was it geared towards women? Yeah. You know, like that's a conversation that we need to have. And I think that I'm not sure how much of it is happening yeah. um, because if we're not targeting things towards men, then what, what's the point? Because yeah. if there's no change, mm-hmm. we're talking about half of the population and that's not even considered. And we're even talking in a binary right now, right? Yeah. Like we're not even talking about, you know, there are folks out here that aren't even acknowledged on the website that should be. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's tricky. And I think that there is a lot of different factors in it. And I think one of them that they always assume, and I always hear is like, you have to like frame things within a global perspective that not everybody's on the same space, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we all know that this is happening, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I don't think, I, I think that there is some handholding here that doesn't need to happen anymore, frankly. So yeah. I saw this amazing video. I can't remember where it's from, but basically Meryl Streep is in it. And she says something along mm-hmm. the lines of how women speak the language. The, the discussion was about film and genres in film or something like that. And she says something along the lines of women speak the language of men, whereas men don't even bother. Like women bother learning the language of men and speaking the language yeah. of men, but men just don't. Men don't speak the language of women and they don't bother learning the language of women. And I think that that sentiment can definitely be translated into what we're talking about here as well. Because like you brought up the topic of masculinity, I think that's such an interesting topic to hear men talk about it is even more interesting because I've been, I started learning about feminism at the age of 15. I've been Mm. identified as a feminist since the age of 16. So this political side of my identity has been very active for the longest time maybe because I felt the need for it to be because I already felt like I was being treated differently for being a woman but with men you see that the political side of their identity is almost always very economic rational those things are considered to be worth talking about worth forming your political identity about but something like masculinity or gender even talking about gender based again like gender always has the connotation of being related to women's issues or something yeah. like that these things are again considered to be softer issues not i mean it's almost like the level of importance that's given to having like an economic rational self is not given to having like the the amount of importance that you will see mm-hmm. being given to developing that side of your personality where you have an opinion on economics or politics or current affairs you would not need to have such a strong opinion about patriarchy or yeah. uh, masculinity, feminism, these things. Again, they're softer topics. Maybe I wonder if it's because the beneficiary of these conversations would be women. So yeah, it's a valid question. I mean, I think, I mean, I will say that, you know, part of the first wave of feminism when it came to development, their sole focus was on how women being stuck in the household limited the amount of money and income, like yeah. a, income can happen. So it was, the conversation was always about, you know, economic empowerment in the sense that women need to be part of the market in order to make the market better. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that was the leading argument. And they had 
economic theory and they had the evidence, the data behind it to really facilitate. And that was actually like the first time that anything got like, you know, shown up in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there are some values that are inherently or have been inherently stuck in being quote unquote more masculine yeah. and then there, but and at the same time, both masculinity and fem- femininity have been sort of uh, created into these, like, like there's this conversation about negative femininity or negative, not negative femininity, but the idea that women use their sexuality to like yeah. get things done, for example. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, masculinity has made men like seem like their the ideas of protection and pride have limited them to be able to understand ideas. I think we, I think it really needs to come down to the center of history has made feminism sound like it is all about women and it is not. Feminism is about choice. It's about autonomy and it's about acknowledging that the systems in place have harmed everyone. And until we get that down, until that, that sort of um, language ends, like we, we can't move forward. And so I really hope, I feel like we're getting to a point now, but I think that there is a lot at stake, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the coming years when it comes to it. And that's such a great point you've made just because even in our discussion about gender-based violence, going forward, I would urge our listeners when they're talking about gender-based violence as well, I I know that through my research, I've kind of learned to not consider it to be something that is a woman's issue. Gender-based violence, it's in the name. It's gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. It's not violence against women. It's gender-based violence. So when we're discussing these issues, when we're thinking about these issues, when we're theorizing about these issues, yeah, I think it would be very helpful to kind of not think in binaries. And yeah. to, if we're trying to strive for a more inclusive world, we need to start off from how we think about the world as well. Totally agree. Completely agree. Well said. <laughs> but yeah, is there is there anything else? Is there any closing thoughts you would like to share with us? No, just that, um, and I'm sure we can potentially add these in, but, uh, you know, if you, if listeners are out there and you have somebody that potentially might be going through gender-based violence or, um, you know, you suspect, I think it's always great to advocate for the various many hotlines that are both global and national that you can reach out to for help. And I want to say that as somebody that works in that space, that it's not, those websites are not just for those that are experiencing the violence, it's for those that want to help and support um, whether they be loved ones and friends that are dealing with it. So I really encourage everyone to go and look for your national hotline that helps push for domestic violence and we can help. Maybe we'll put like the London one in or the UK just to be there. But, um, and I also think that you should just look and think about how some of the campaign materials when it starts in November 25th with the 16 days who the audience actually is. And I I really encourage everybody to question that. Mm -hmm. Think about who the audience should be and how it is portrayed. Because I think the only way that we can really change is really acknowledging where we are at fault. And so, um, yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ragini. This has been delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Madeira. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into So We Heard. We hope you enjoyed our show. I'm your host, Ragini, signing off and going to overhear some interesting conversations to bring back to you. See you.
LSE Department of International Development and the LSE Volunteer Center for all their support in not only the production and promotion of this episode, but also with expanding our team. We would not be able to reach all of you if it wasn't for their platform. Thank you, LSE. This episode was produced by Ragini Puri and researched by Doris Huang.